Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Today I have with me two global leaders, Simon Miles and James Beck, both from the Coca-Cola Company. Simon is the Vice President of Global Omnichannel Commercial Strategy, and he leads the e-commerce relationship between Coke and Walmart International. James is a Global Marketing Director supporting Walmart's International Division, where he creates and advances global strategic initiatives such as FIFA World Cup, Olympics, gaming, and esports. Both James and Simon have tremendous experience and passion with customer-centric leadership. We talked at length about the importance of customer experience for both retailers, brands, and what it means internally for employees as well. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the podcast, guys. I really appreciate you taking time to join me today. I'm so excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for some time because I've known both of you for some time, and uh, James a little longer, I suppose. But you both are in great roles that connect to the customer in so many important ways. And so I'm looking forward to what we uh, can talk about today. And we'll have to be careful because it could go in a million different directions of interest because we share so many different interests. But uh, welcome to the show, both you, Simon, James. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting us, Sandy. It should be a really good discussion. Always good to spend time Excellent. with you guys. Well, so guys, as we get started today, I'd like to just first hear from both of you on um, just a, a thumbnail sketch of your background and specifically how it might tie to the experiences related to customer centricity and being um, connected back to the customer. But if you could uh, just give me a, a bit of a background on uh, what you're doing now and, uh, and how you got to that, to that role. So James, you want to start? You bet. So my background's a bit unique because I've worked in brand marketing in the CPG space. I've worked at retail for a, a small little company most people may have heard about that's based in Bentonville, Arkansas. And then I've worked for the Coca-Cola company working with uh, Walmart, uh, both domestically and uh, most recently globally. So really my role now as a global marketing director is to lead marketing collaboration uh, between Walmart and the Coca-Cola company outside the U.S. and also build capabilities, not just for our Coke teams, uh, but also for the teams we work with at, at Walmart. Well, that's great. And, you know, James, you're one of the few guys that I, I share some similar background with of being at a big CPG company and then also working inside of, of a big retailer uh, like Walmart. Um, take me to some of the epiphanies that you had when you, because you worked, started CPG, then went into that experience. And how did that, you know, what were some epiphanies that might have came that you didn't realize about the life and times and how things get done in big retail as compared to CPG land? Yeah, I mean, a couple of differences. I mean, one, at least in the old days in CPG, you spend a lot of time planning and getting things right and focusing on the consumer and solving problems. 
but really maybe at least historically weren't as consumer centric as we might have thought. And I did learn one thing back in brand. This was back at uh, the Pillsbury Company and maybe somebody you knew from P&G, John Lilly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the execs were up on the 30th floor and he had a famous expression is the answer is not here in Pillsbury Tower. The answer is somewhere out there. Go find it. And the thing about retail and working at Walmart is the answer is right in front of you every day when you get out and talk to customers, uh, get in stores. And a famous expression that I look, uh, learned at Walmart is get out into the stores so that you can figure yeah. out what it's like to eat what you cook. So I've tried to learn that, you know, when you create stuff at a headquarters level, as a brand level, you should be thinking about how do you make it easy for those people who deal with customers, shoppers, people putting money in your wallets every day. And that was a big epiphany, not to mention the fact that when they talk about the speed of retail, it really is the speed of retail. It is a fire hose. And, you know, from a career perspective, you will get so much experience so quickly. It's absolutely mind blowing. And I think you maybe think that going into retail. But it certainly I, I would second so that. Very, the very velocity exciting. is uh, a shock to your system in terms of velocity of feedback uh, from the customer directly, velocity of activity, uh, especially if you, as you did, worked in the marketing uh, side where you were moving at the speed of light all the time. So it's, it's, a, it's a great – we'll come back to, to more on that conversation because it's a, a great one to mine into. Simon, you have had a pretty interesting career from digital to uh, retail specific and now into a global role for e-commerce. I'm really excited to hear about your background. Yeah, so uh, mine's a bit more, probably a bit more varied than, than Jim's. I haven't done retail stuff, I've done virtually everything else, uh, whether that's small companies, large companies, uh, or working for myself. So as you say, I'm now in a, a, an omni-channel role uh, leading our work there from a global perspective. But you know, I've worked at the Coke, in the Coke system for 14 years, um, you know, run customer teams, run shopper marketing teams, insight teams, um, pretty much all of the roles that we have going. Um, but, you know, prior to that, I was you know, working in consultancy. I was working, uh, I worked as the marketing director for the World Rally Championship in the sports arena. So, yeah, lots of lots of variety in my background. Probably not a career path you would write <laughs> at the beginning. Um, but one I really enjoyed, you know, looking back on it, and it's, it's definitely added to, to the ability that I have today, I think. Well, and you uh, mentioned um, you worked for yourself some, so you did uh, experience life as an entrepreneur as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I left um, the sports area, actually, I picked up a, a whole sort of range of different contacts, which were really interesting in the sort of sponsorship world. Um, and just worked as a, as a one-man entrepreneur, essentially. Um, so advising companies on their kind of marketing and sponsorship strategy out of sports particularly, but how the branding world and the sports world can kind of come together, um, which is interesting given what, what I now do, because there's, there's a lot of parallels in, in many ways. You know, it's about reaching people in the right way that's relevant to their lives. And, you know, when you listen to James talking about, you know, his experience from a retailer perspective, it's exactly the same thing, really. We're just trying to figure out human behavior and how we show up at the right time and the right way. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I'm really passionate about is I, I spent exactly half my career as an entrepreneur and the other half in big corporations. And uh, I think one of the myths about people in corporate is that to they, there's a romantic idea about being an entrepreneur and going and do that, uh, mainly sometimes because it is tough to do innovative things in big companies. But um, if you crack the code on it, it can be done. And that's a, a space I'm really 
passionate about is how can you take some of the things an entrepreneur knows how to do really well and bring them into the bigger Fortune 500 type companies mm -hmm. and continue that journey of innovation because it is the lifeblood of the future. And uh, a lot of times if you've grown up only in corporate and have never done the entrepreneur side, it, it's, it's sometimes taken on new innovative things. It don't have those muscles built yet to, to do that. But that's something, though, an entrepreneur does for breakfast every day um, that you get used to. So have you found any kind of secret uh, thought, secret ideas that you could share around how do you be an entrepreneur in a corporate uh, Fortune 500 type company? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's one that challenges a lot of big organizations, frankly, because often you know, the way they're structured just doesn't allow you to be, you know, agile or innovative in a way that we just need to be in, in this day and age. So, you know, it's, it's something definitely we, we think about a lot at Coca-Cola and, you know, we're, we're moving into a place where we have a much more of a networked approach to our organization. So less hierarchical, you know, actually just get the people you need into the room and make the decision quick, you know, and, and certain sort of things we try to live by around, you know, and, and things in the public domain, like, you know, if it's 80% right, it's good enough, let's move, let's do it, yeah. iterate, move on, you know, the, that kind of attitude, which is just the way you have to do business when you're an entrepreneur, because you ain't got time to do anything else, right? You've just got to get in there and, and make it work. Um, you know, there's no point in us slowing it down and trying to make it perfect, because the world outside is moving so quickly, we have to, you know, be moving uh, at the same pace. So there's certainly some of that kind of mindset piece is so important. Um, and a lot of that gets set at the top. And we're, James and I are very fortunate. Our CEO, James Quincy, is absolutely kind of, you know, pushing that as a way of working. Um, and so I think, you know, but yes, it gets set from the top. But all of us have the responsibility as leaders, whether in, we're in technically in leadership positions or not. You know, we're the ones that can lead and showcase how that can work in a, in a big organization. And that itself has a ripple effect through the rest of the, the rest of the company. Well, you know, I'm glad you said I'm glad you said that because mindset, I do think, is is probably a bigger uh, uh, issue, I'd say, than than necessarily uh, methodology, because the agile methods are there and they and they can tend to work. Uh, I ran was co-chair of an innovation fund at, at, at ASTA. And we had money set aside to all you needed was a one page brief, basically. Uh, and what kept you would think that that would free up a ton of ideas and that entrepreneurial spirit to innovate and come up with things. But but the mindset of people uh, to go take that chance and, you know, where where the an environment where the leader wasn't going to say, here's the idea I want you to go do and commission those. But, you know, the briefs are all around you and the mindset of, well, I have to be given permission to do this or that uh, can really get in the way. So we had, you know, sometimes we didn't, you know, spend all the money we had on innovation because the ideas weren't there because individuals just had a hard time getting past the belief system that I didn't have to be commissioned something. Yeah. Uh, if I have a good idea, I, I've got, you know, there's some funds there to get started. Let's try it, test and learn and, and fail fast. And uh, so it is, a, it, the mindset was the bigger barrier and it does start at the top. So you guys are lucky to have that um, mindset at the top. So, so both of you have been working in shopper marketing in some form or other for many, many years, a space very close to my heart. Uh, and I think, you know, if you look at shopper marketing back then and you look at it now, um, you know, there was a period there, and James, you could relate to this as uh, well, where you know, like shopper marketing is not relevant anymore, shopper marketing's dead, all those kind of things that, that are said about things like that. But if you really look back to what we were doing, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, and both you guys were in that space, um, 
in my mind, it is the same thing. It, it is the path to purchase, call it now customer journey, uh, you know, customer experience, which is, you know, all about uh, how you connect with a shopper on all the different levels. So what are your guys' thoughts on um, this area of, uh, we call shopper marketing, how it's moved from the past and what it might be today in today's vernacular? Either one. <laughs> Start. So, I mean, I, th I think at the end of the day, really, it's solving problems uh, for, for shoppers. And really, as made abundantly clear by you, Andy, I mean, we used to talk about interrupting the shopper. And one thing I learned, it's like, make it easy for them to transact. I mean, we've got so much going on in our lives. Just make our lives easier. I won't reference the uh, restaurant but there's a certain restaurant you go to that I kid you not must have 16 pages of ideas. Our brains are swimming with so much information that a lot of times we just want things to be easy. And so the more that we can make lives easier for shoppers, whether it's, you know, an age old question at four o'clock that most people have at least, you know, prior to being stuck at home and probably still being stuck at home is what's for dinner tonight. And, if you can make that easy, it's like, oh, there's a brilliant recipe, but I don't necessarily want to go hunt out the 50 ingredients or the seven ingredients either. Can I just click a button and it's right there in my cart and pick it up later today? Those types of things, adjacencies or connecting via emotions. You know, a lot of times what what's on people's minds, you know, they want those brands. They want those customers or not customers, but but retailers to understand that and understand them and make sure that, you know, there's some empathy that they get it, that they're making a difference. So the more that you can connect, you know, making lives easier, um, relating to them, I don't think that'll ever go away. And I think Simon will probably touch on just some of the, I'd call it blocking yeah. and tackling. I think Simon will call it brilliant basics. But it. There's lots of things we can do just to make shopping easier, yeah. which makes life easier. Yeah. I think, I think it's exactly right, James, just to build on that. I think there's a couple of other things which are very noticeable, you know, if you, if you take yourselves back 10 or 15 years. I think today's world is much more rooted in data and analytics than it was then. Um, so the ability to measure things so that you know whether you're getting your basics right, you know whether you're, you know, you're showing up at the right point and how, whether it's leading to transactions or not is just, you know, a different dimension to what it was in those days. I think the other observation I would have is, you know, if I, if I think back to how we used to build out shop marketing plans, if I'm being slightly rude about it, I would say that the brand guys were sort of putting an advert on TV and then we were building shop and marketing kind of led displays in store. And we were hoping that the shopper was going to connect the dots between that ad they saw three days ago and the display we put there. Well, of course, in today's world, you can bring that, you can absolutely close that gap. So you can show up in yeah. their shopping journey, whether it's online, on a mobile or whatever, at exactly the right moment with exactly the right proposition and put your you know, beautiful branded message there right at the moment they're going to make that transaction. And that has, in my mind, is sort of revolutionized in many ways our ability to be effective as shopping marketeers. Uh, and I think that the, you know, what, what other people don't realize is that everyone's a shop marketeer now, whether they realize it or not. So, you know, and that, that's great for us old shop marketeers who've been in that space for a while. Um, but I think it's I think it's really key that we kind of, you know, keep that in mind. And, and as James says, build that out as part of how we make people's lives easier, better, faster or cheaper. Well, that is so true. And, you know, it just brings back some memories there, uh, both Simon and James, that 
I have from how that space has evolved because the debate at one time was, you know, matching luggage or not, which that whole, I never hear the words matching luggage, which uh, it just shows how the space has evolved, but that was all on should the POS match the TV. That's what matching luggage meant, not should the TV had matched this in-store piece, to be clear, uh, which way the matching was going to happen. But but we don't have the matching luggage. And the other thing that uh, was a big uh, uh, discussion point and how we've evolved is uh, it was much more shopper marketing centered on really getting a brand to cut through in a category. And so much so that, and this is something that came to life for me when I transitioned into the retail space of so just how crazy that was. But the, the frameworks that I saw back in the day were like, stop, hold, and close. Mm-hmm. Well, what shopper wants to be stopped? And, and, and it sounds like they're going to jail. Uh, and in that idea of, you know, you wanted to disrupt the shopper and hold them and, you know, and close them um, is the antithesis of what today's expectations are. Because you want to you actually invite, you know, you want to invite and engage, not stop, hold and close. So I think, thankfully, we've moved past that. And if you're from a retail side, uh, you don't want every single brand in an aisle trying to stop, hold, and close because they'll never get out of that aisle, um, you know, if everybody was doing that. And so I, I'm glad to see those evolutions happen, especially in language and how we look at the customer from that. Um, I do have one big question for you guys. When, um, you know, customer centricity is a big topic right now, competing on customer experience is, is certainly in vogue, fueled by COVID, I suppose, but perhaps it's not going back. It's, it's really a big discussion point for most retailers uh, and brands. How do you see the role of a, of a, a company like Coke, who is selling to the retailer and then the consumer you know, in the store as a shopper, is there a role to play in that total horizontal chain of how a customer might, might connect and enhance that customer experience? Because it feels at times the bulk of the heavy lifting is going to be whatever the retailer is doing. But is there a role for the brands to play in enhancing that customer journey? Yeah, um, I was on a bit of a, a roll there with the human insights. Um, uh, yeah, so I think I think the second thing is, you know, making sure that we utilize those insights to genuinely kind of add value that matters to shoppers. So just as we were talking about, Andy, you know, people don't want to be interrupted or disrupted really when they're doing their shop. They want to be helped. And so using that insight to, to understand how we can add value that they're really interested in. So that might be price, but it might be you know, different solutions, making meals better, you know, those kind of things that we can offer up. Or it might be competitions, it might be, you know, some of the assets we have access to. There's all sorts of ways in which we can play a part there, which just enhance the great value that the retailers are already, um, you know, supplying to those customers. So I I think there's, you know, still real relevance for us um, from a category specific point of view. James, what do you think? And, and I would say, you know, going back to if I'm a brand team, what are those things that I can do to simplify shopping? You know, making it real simple on the front of pack. This is how many calories I contain or perhaps the ingredients because you have folks that may be participating in certain categories and not participating in others. You know, making it really clear. You know, what am I? Um, I can't tell you how many times I see whether it's an advertisement or even a a product where you really have to invest your time as a shopper, as a consumer, to really understand what they are. So I think part of those brands living in the real world and 
really stress testing ideas, whether it's packaging, whether it's the product itself, uh, are keenly important. And not to mention uh, connecting emotionally on, on matters that brands uh, care about, but knowing that shoppers care about those things too. Um, we know from data, and there's a lot of data points here, where you know when price and quality for a product are equal, a lot of time consumers will spend their money with those brands, with those companies that are actually making a difference. So whether it's making the planet more livable, whether it's doing good locally, whether it's advancing you know, more inclusion, more diversity of ideas into the workforce, those are all things that you know, come into a brand proposition that can come to life in retail, or in the case of Coca-Cola and Walmart, we are highly aligned in those areas. So make sure that we work together to amplify that and also learn from one another because Lord knows we all need to get better in those areas. So your idea earlier that you mentioned, Andy, in terms of you know test, learn, and iterate, the more that we can become horizontal and test more frequently around, I mean, we operate in 207 countries. There, there's no room for not invented here anymore. You know, single fundamental human insights travel. Let's find those good ideas through testing and scale them really quickly, especially when it's in the best interest of the consumer, the shopper, or in our case, you know, maybe a franchise bottler or a customer like Walmart or McDonald's. That, that, that's that's great to hear. I'd love to hear your perspective on this question. Um, we uh, I run a clubhouse room on Tuesdays for big brands doing business with big retailers, and clubhouse is an interesting phenomenon on its own on how that's evolving. But but you know, one of the 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 discussion points came up is too often uh, brands want to approach retailers with everything buttoned up and perfect. And my experience has been from both sides of that aisle has been that's not a good idea because if you can let that buyer co-create and leave space for them to add value, you know, people don't kill what they co-create. And, and even if you have a hundred percent of it, cause you want to have the big ta-da and show them everything. But I've always found that, you know, getting a buyer to, to your point of say, get it to 80%, co-create the rest of the way. Uh, it's, it just, the, the value add there because there's so many pieces of the pie, but for many brand teams, that's a really hard ask because you've got a very, uh, precious view and you want to present your best, right? So what's your guys' advice on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right, Andy. And I think there's a there's a bit of a shift happening and has happened probably in the last three or four years where you're right, the old yep. world was, you know, brand managers being very precious about their brand programs and often for good reasons. But actually, the most successful programs we've been running in the last few years have absolutely been those where we have um, taken a different approach where we've sat down side by side with the retail customer and said, help us understand, you know, what, what you're trying to solve for. We'll talk about what we're trying to solve for. How do we looking for um, so it's really important I think that we, we sort of take that approach um, looking forwards yeah so um, so, so we, we definitely see that as a, as a better way um, to plan joint activities going forwards and, and frankly it, it takes a little bit of perhaps a bit more humility to say I don't have all the answers but you know you know together we probably can produce a, a better solution the, the other side of that which I would say is that the way of working between you know, retailers and suppliers is changing significantly. So, which is helping those kind of discussions. So the example is in the old days, it was, you know, the, the supplier would send an account manager and the, the, you know, the category buyer would be there. And that's where the negotiation takes place. That's not the way these things are working at their best. To be, you know, much better, we're actually having, you know, the marketing teams, the media teams, the supply chain teams, the category teams, all at the table, 
together with their counterparts. And actually, when you get all of those brains in a room, you get a much better answer and a much better programme um, launched you know, together uh, with better support on both sides, frankly. So there's definitely a different way of working as well, which helps support that. Well, yeah, and it, it does uh, make it a, a bit um, more challenging in some ways if you've got you know, a JBP program, you know, mods are going to reset twice a year. And that whole world has been built around that particular workflow between suppliers and retailers. And that starts to change. It, it, there's a domino effect, but I think there's a huge upside about being more agile and test and learn now because that, and I know Walmart and many retailers are really trying to embrace agile, mainly because the omni-channel collapse, you know, connection where the dot-com guys, that's the way they lived and breathed and did their work. And you put those two organizations closer together, something's going to give because those are two different ways of operating. And so I think Agile is going to win, which what hasn't yet been worked out is how does that then work through the whole supply system with, with big suppliers in terms of what's the new collaboration model and how do you get involved in those collaborations? But it's, it does sound like Coke. And, and that's not untypical for the big top brands like you guys to be on the front edge of those things to, to sort that out. But I think that's really encouraging to hear. Um, James, any thoughts? Yeah, the, the only thing I'll add, you know, from an experience standpoint, I know we've mentioned supply chain, but I used to joke about it at Walmart, too, is nobody's found a way to monetize air yet. So <laughs> in, until we we do, it's really important, especially as the e-commerce world and the physical world merge that and especially as they change so quickly that supply chain and logistics have a major seat at the table because they're the ones that are going to have to figure out how to get all those brilliant innovations and brilliant ideas actually available for sale, not later, but whenever, wherever, however they want to A, buy them and B, have them in their possession. That, that, so, that's great. Anyway. I want to test a hypothesis on you guys and feel free to say, Andy, I think you got that completely wrong, but um, it's about the future and where uh, where we need to see retail go in some ways. But with, with COVID, a lot of the essential categories, customers have gotten accustomed to buying those online. And that's been an, an okay process. And a lot more of essential categories fall into that space, which uh, what it creates is a challenge down the road in terms of how do you discover new items. Uh, I've noticed that e-commerce isn't always the best for browsing. And that browsing behavior um, is, is what you really need to get new items uh, into distribution that you're trying to get, get new. When you look at a, a, an aisle that, that typically in the in-store space, if that category traffic is going most more online, then I think we're going to have to rethink those categories to be uh, deliver better browsing experiences because that's where browsing can be as, at its best. And a lot of categories are not set up. I'm talking generic essential categories where browsing is, you, you might see SKUs that have no differentiation, you, 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 it's hard to work out value, um, browsing and really an, a communicating choice because a lot of the categories I'm used to, um, that the, they're overranged and underchoiced. And when you uh, say that the store has to, to think about browsing differently, there's two challenges, an e-commerce challenge and how do you make browsing better online? And then the second challenge is how do you make browsing a higher priority in the sets uh, that are put out there in the planograms for the stores? And so, um, oh, it, so James, you want to take that one first on the browsing? 
No, you are absolutely spot on, and I am not blowing sunshine your way. Simon and I were literally just having this conversation last week via IM and and conversation. I think it's it's a couple of things. You know, Simon mentioned early the power of data. I think for one thing, from an online perspective, we'll need to get better leveraging that data to make better suggestions for people, uh, so that the types of suggestions we're we're making are helpful of interest, you know, based on, you know, how they've behaved, but hopefully if we get to the point to where we think that it might be helpful in the future. And secondarily, the other thing I'll say is the creative is really going to have to evolve and the media and the experience to make that of interest. And I, I agree, it's a, it's a massive challenge, but I also think the challenge that puts on brands, back to your comment earlier about being over, uh, overranged, if you will, and maybe few real innovations, it may help a lot of manufacturers and branding companies get much, much better at what they do introduce to market. So I I think you're spot on. I wish I had the answer because Simon and I would probably be retired and, and made a lot of money on this already. But well, can I just add, I don't know. Before, Simon, what do you have to add? Yeah, well, no, I, before Simon uh, shares his point of view on it, I, this is one of the reasons I think we're going to be entering a new era, an age of creativity and innovation, because um, it just won't be good enough to do a slight variation of, of an item to get the trial and uh, choice there. And so it puts a big burden on the product development process to, to really reach a little bit higher than what they may have reached from an incrementality perspective, because um, it's not going to be an easy sell to get that new item in front of customers or, or an easy path, by the way, so because if they're not in the aisles much. But Simon, how are, how are you thinking about e-commerce and the browsing element uh, for discovering new items? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you've got it all wrong, Andy, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> just, just kidding. No, we, we're, we are definitely wrestling with the, with the same issue. I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of things I would say. I think um, I've seen for a while that, that I, in my view, there's a kind of fork in the road coming, right, which is uh, some of it technology enabled. So you, you're absolutely right about the in-store experience and the way people have got used to buying certain categories online in particular. And I think we're moving towards a world in which a lot of that, if it's data-driven, we can be anticipatory about when people will want to reorder. And I think we'll, we'll see many more subscription-based models coming through. So many of the categories that, frankly, you know, if, you're a, if you've got a new baby in the house, you do not want to run out of diapers, right? That is an utter disaster. So you want that, that regular you know, delivery coming in so that you're never running out of stock at home. So I think I can see some part of the traditional kind of shop um, ending up in a, in a tech-enabled automatic subscription model. Right. What that means then is the rest of the shop and, the, and actually some of the physical store would need to be re-engineered around much more experiential and impulse driven. And I think that's where some of this, um, some of the things you're talking about, some of the challenges will need to be um, solved for in that kind of area. I think that's where we need to work really hard at bringing to life new and innovation. And it needs to work really, really hard. And so I think, you know, there's, a, there's definitely a piece of work around what that can look like. And then I think with a sort of specific eye online, I think we need to all think about it in a much broader context than we have up to now. So it's not just about the experience you're going to get when you log on to a walmart.com or a Kroger or whoever. 
but actually it's thinking about their entire ecosystem and how can we utilize that to bring new and exciting you know, uh, innovation to market. So think about the social media channels, think about offsite targeting, think about all the other capabilities we have from a digital perspective that actually are enabling us to tell stories because that's what we need to do better is tell the stories that lie behind these innovations. Um, and, I, and I can see a world in which you know, that is really you know, the way that we will um, adopt methods like that and utilize some of these new, newer channels um, to a greater degree. I, I couldn't agree more. And if you think about uh, simple things like QR codes on packaging, to, especially for new, to just get that quick and, and the, the consumer adoption of QR code scanning has gone through the roof because now restaurants with menus, it's, it's you know, consumers very comfortable QR codes, but it hasn't yet worked its way through at an in-store packaging level, which it could. And you might see that, I suppose, being able to tell that story as people are very comfortable with that technology mm -hmm. uh, to go through that. The other thing I would probably just add is uh, for the longest time, uh, there hasn't been a lot of macro space adjustments in retail stores because the capital involved is so much. And when you did a macro space move, it's usually in a remodel, which that's going to cycle through on a you know store-by-store -store basis over a seven-year you know, type of cycle. But I think the shopping habits have changed so dramatically that many categories are either underspaced or overspaced mm -hmm. in a way that's not going to get fixed in a category level space adjustment. And so if you've got, you know, massively baggy space, say in diaper aisle, because, you know, that's now moved a bit, um, you know, to get to what to do with that space is not, I mean, it's a huge capital cost for retailers um, to do that and store planning and, and the pieces that go with that. And, and in general, in the industry, that has slowed down over the last three years of any kind of macro space mm -hmm. because of the capital investment required to do that. I think that's going to heat up. I really do. I think we're going to see that macro store space, new store prototypes that deal to the whole store environment because you're going to have too many categories mm -hmm. that's been disrupted uh, in terms of how that traffic has, has gone. So it, to me, that just creates an enormous amount of opportunity to think about um, how browsing and for choice. I mean, I've been in many aisles. Um, I would walk in with suppliers and look at it just from a customer insight perspective. That was one of the spaces I had in a remit. And as you look through that, the one question I would ask in, not, not in a beverage aisle, because I think the buying dynamics are different, but in several categories, it would be, if you're the customer, can you work out value in terms of which, which choice here is the best value? And we've got multiple pack sizes, multiple pricing uh, offers going on at the same time across that. Uh, and, and then different languages between uses or dosages or whatever, um, you would be stuck in an alpha. You couldn't, we couldn't work it out. I mean, I've been in several, we, you know, these guys are like, like you guys, all fancy MBA, you know, smart guys that couldn't work out uh, how much, what's the best value of an item in, a, in the shelf and, and neither can the customer. And so I think there's so many rich customer problems to be solved that uh, it's just, uh, those are just still unsolved problems. If you can save time, save money. But I think we talked in the day, James, about time budget, a money budget, and a frustration budget. And they, those are real for, exactly. for customers. And now's the time to solve them. Yeah, and I mean, just one thing to add to you spot on. And I think it opens up a real opportunity for experiential and new ways to experience whether, you know, as Simon mentioned via social media, I don't think people are going to stop going to stores, but there's a lot of opportunity, um, you know, 
long runway uh, as it relates to optimizing and getting much better at experiential, which I think can be a, a lot of fun and very exciting. And most importantly for the uh, shopper th and consumer uh, helpful. Yeah. And, and I think the e-commerce side and how that space is working out too. I mean, I, um, Simon, I just am still puzzled by so many brands when you really start to even look through search in general and, and a customer's interest, um, what they land on, it might be a great brand story, but it doesn't really connect to the problems that customers trying to solve. And that is, so I still think there's lots of room for brands to create more consumer interest that lead through the e-commerce space in a more fluid way um many of the item pages i've seen and it's getting better for sure but many item pages look like they came from tech packaging uh in terms of the features and benefits and technical things that are on there that a consumer has to look at and uh do you do you see a world where um the customer storytelling becomes a bigger impact point in what's put into these e-commerce buckets of brands um, where today it feels more like a brand team or tech product operations team might be driving a bit more of that content. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I think I think um, actually on average, you know, we, we as an industry should be pretty embarrassed about the state of, of most of the sites because I, I agree with that. I think, I think a lot of product item pages are really poor. You know, they, they don't really tell the story in any sort of compelling way that is in tune with the shopper in any way, really. It's, it, quite often it is text lifted off the back of the pack and put onto a web page. And, you know, it, it just used to drive me crazy. I mean, when we first started doing it years ago, you know, if I go back, my favorite example was always um, one on Diet Coke. And I looked at a page one day on a, on a retail site and it, the description was um, low calorie soft drink made from vegetable fats. And you're like, wow, is that really what is that how we want to be describing our products? You know, there was just somebody had just kind of made something out and put it on the site. And so. Oh, it, it just it, it kind of fills you with horror now. You know, clearly we fixed all that now, but you know, it, oh, yeah, it yeah. kind of shows you how how bad it, it can get um, if you don't take care of it. So you're absolutely right. You've got to be much better. And I do see, uh, and let's be honest, it's difficult, right? I feel for the retailers because just as you were citing the example of the capital cost of you know relaying the store, it's also something you know relaying the structure of the website is not a simple task, right? So you know right. we've got to basically you know where we started as an industry was we put the catalog on online and so we're still living with a bit of that legacy but i think what i'm seeing is much more um thought going into well what's the occasion that we're going to here or what's the experience that lies behind it you know is there a theme to it and some of those things just bring the bring the pages to life allow you to tell an interesting story in an engaging way and and, and enable the, the shop perhaps to be a more pleasant experience you know to get through it quicker or to Think about tangential projects, products, which make sense to go with the thing you're looking at. So, yeah, it's definitely improving, but it, it, there's a long way to go for sure. Well, that's great. I, I agree. And, and one more last kind of, well, I got not last question. Um, another thing I want to talk about is I do think uh, I've experienced a world and these things go in cycles where brand top brands and top retailers would create these amazing programs. And then times when that was a bit more transactional in terms of how those relationships, what they were focused on. And I think James, you and I go back to where we did a Coke, uh, Walmart, um, you know, uh, super or a, a Christmas ad that, that could partnered on to, that did really, really well. And, and thinking about joint purpose and joint equity and things that are more meaningful to the customer. Uh, I, I, I still think there's lots of room for that 
in the industry that is a, a, a tying up purpose-driven things because customers and consumers do care about purpose. Uh, and I hope that, you know, that's something we see the pendulum swing even more to than what it has been. Uh, and, and probably I think the retailers are going to compete and win are going to be those that, that understand that. And it doesn't have to be a transactional type relationship. I think on the, the Coke Walmart had no money changed hands, um, to, to do that. It was just two teams trying to do what's right for the customer and engage the customer. So, um, my, my, I'm still hopeful for that because I think that is that collaboration taken to even bigger levels. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think. Yeah, and one thing, just we as a as a company. Oh, okay, go ahead, ahead, James. Anyway, we strive to be our customers. Okay, sorry. Hmm. Yeah, we strive to be our customers' best business partner. And whether they want to pick up the phone and call James Quincy and say, "Look, I'm entering a new market. You guys have experience there. What would you do? Is it HR related? Hmm. Is it accounting practice related? In in your particular instance, I know we had a conversation. You know about your brand. And I think my question to you is, which part of your brand would you like assistance with? Is it save money or is it live better? Mm -hmm. I, said, I need a little bit of help with live better. That's and, right. you know, we married the fact that, you know, we can really make that happen. And, you know, there was magic there. There was magic when we worked together to, you know, distribute unpoppable soccer balls to teenagers across five uh, different continents to afford them the gift of play because yep. for both of our companies, guess what? Play is where people learn to be creative, right. to solve problems, to work in teams, all those things that we care about. So I love the fact that, you know, both of our, our companies uh, or your former company, my former mm -hmm. company and the current one that I work for now um, are aligned from a purpose because that can be a lot of fun and help us both solve problems that matter to us and for our societies. Because, I mean, both of us given a ton of responsibility. And so it's really important that we keep our eye on making a difference in, in all those communities where we operate. It's a lot more fun to work on big ideas. And so I think, you know, life's too short to be all transactional anyway. And so I, I, I'm just really excited about that. Hey, Simon, you're gonna say something. Yeah, I was just, I mean, Jen, Jen said it very well. I was just gonna add a little bit, you know, if you think about our, our company mission, right, is refresh the world and make a difference. And, it, and it's, the, it's the making a difference part of it that's really, really crucial. Um, you know, and, it, and it's I've seen it evolve over the last few years where, you know, it was one of those things that you tried to get to, to do, you know, after all the transactional stuff was done. Frankly, it's front and center now. You know, people just expect it. They need to see that companies are genuinely doing things which make a difference in the communities in which they live. And we have a responsibility as large organizations to make that real and, and genuinely make a difference to people's lives, not just tokenism, not just playing at it, but, you know, to invest heavily and to do the right things. So that's why we, you know, we're into significant programs around plastics and water usage and those kind of areas. And of course, where we can intersect them with other customers like Walmart, who have, you know, Project Gigaton and other things that they're doing. And there's such a great synergy, as James was saying, that, you know, it's an absolute no brainer, an absolute must that we get those programs right and we do the right thing. Excellent. Excellent. Well, one last question for you both. Um, the world that we work in now is so much more connected from a customer centricity. The customer's driving that. Just as you said, the customer's driving collaboration between companies, the customer's driving, um, you know, the, the, a simplification that requires working across silos. Uh, and yet, if you go to most universities, uh, there's no customer organization training or customer department, um, it's, it comes from multiple different lenses. 
uh, if you were to advise, uh, if you were just starting your careers out at the beginning, um, coming out of uni and going into what, what advice would you have to students that are coming into the workforce around the types of experiences that will prepare you to be a leader in the future in an organization like Coke? Um, any, any kind of different paths than what you might have told them 10 years ago if, if you both have had traditional brand experiences, but you know, what, what might you tell them today? I think I think for, for me, there's probably some things which stayed the same and are sort of timeless, and others that are probably evolving. So, you know, I still think you know having passion and curiosity and those kind of things are values that stand you in good stead as you build your career. And I think our uh, you know the attitudes of the people that we're hiring, that's what we're hiring for is their kind of outlook and the way they approach problems and stuff. Because you can't really hire on skills very easily these days because the skills we've got now are not going to be the relevant ones in three or five years' time, right? So how do you know that person's going to be the right person? Well, because of the attitude they have and the way they approach problems and their curiosity and to solve and the way they work with other people. So, so those are the things that I think is really important. But I, but I also think, and I've given this advice to a few people that I mentor, is I think it's really important in the early stages of your career to think about building a very solid broad base to your skill set so if you if you're if you're fortunate like james and i you work for a company like coca-cola it offers you a wealth of of different types of roles and don't I, my advice is don't think narrowly so think about how do you build out the strength of your base so whether that is getting exposure into finance or or human resources or supply chain or marketing or sales you know all of those elements are going to pay you back in future years because it will build your broader understanding of how organizations work and how they get things done because the challenge in today's world is it moves so quickly the people who succeed are the people who can get stuff done and are able to navigate around it and if they've walked in your other the other people's shoes so much the better uh, that's that's great advice that's great advice and and you know one of the things that i learned at proctor in my time there uh, I was there almost nine years, I kept taking assignments that were on the fringe. I mean, you know, when I told him I was going to Fayetteville, Arkansas, this is back in 91 when, you know, P&G uh, was bigger than Walmart. And now that's all changed, of course. But but they said, why would you go there? You know, and where is that? And, and those kind of questions, which probably still people do uh, talk about today somewhat, it's changed a little bit, James, in terms of the reputation and value of coming to to the fringe. But my suggestion would be take those fringe assignments because that's where innovation happens. Innovation happens on the fringe. And the traditional wisdom of taking a certain type of role cookie cutter to get to the top. I mean, Simon, your background is very circuitous in terms of how you've landed to where you've, you are. And those experiences add up. And so if you do join a Coke or a big company, I'd say don't, be, don't listen to the rhetoric that says uh, you got to go a certain path in order to get promoted because I think it's not true anymore. And I would definitely go to the fringe opportunities where you can do some innovation and cool stuff. James, you're on the fringe. Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo the the things both of you guys have, have discussed. And I mean, having a daughter in undergrad right now, I mean, some of the advice, if they have an opportunity while they're still in school, take the best professors, um, regardless of function. I mean, there's a wealth to be learned in cost accounting, because guess what? You are working cross-functionally and, and hearing how the world works. You know, become comfortable with analysis and I'll just joke, do not take multiple choice exams for five years like I did in undergrad. You know, I love those liberal arts majors and those accounting majors and, and engineering folks that are adept at, at 
solving problems. So I think that's really important. And the other piece is just the ability to influence, regardless of where you are, the ability to craft a story with data. So become comfortable, again, back to the problem solving and utilizing data, but to craft a simple story that will get people on your side and also sort of the maturity to be willing to iterate because there's a lot of great ideas if you'll just spread the wealth in form of your your questions to your supply chain counterparts and your accountants and your frontline workers. Anyway, I think that the key is nice in the sandbox, influence, and uh, don't be afraid to your point to, to, to hit the fringes because there's a lot of, of good to be done, a lot of commerce to be had, and uh, certainly at the end of the day, a lot of fun to be had. I, I love it. I mean, I, I like this idea of the crafting your story. And even if your own story about what are you about, what are you passionate about, you know, work that story out so you could tell it and tell it to leaders and others you talk to. And if you could simplify a problem and tell a story, because there's so much complexity. And if you could do that, that's really well. Like, you guys will appreciate this. There's a technique. I grew up in the, in the computer science space first. And so... And there's a technique called rubber ducking. And, and basically what you do, and I keep this on my desk, is if, you get a, if you're running into a code problem or something really difficult, you, you sit and you describe that problem to a rubber duck and it is so that it can understand it. Or some may, it's called the Feynman technique, and it's actually really helpful because in that process of simplifying – you end up finding answers that you didn't think through and you help others to, to work with that. And so if you can tell your personal story to a rubber duck, uh, you'll be you'll be in a good spot spot. So anyway, I thought you might find that kind of humorous and please don't make fun of me for that. <laughs> no, no, I love that. I mean, just, James and I have talked about a similar thing, which is, you know, if you're getting, getting in trouble, can you explain it to a five year old? That, that's what we often keep in our yeah. minds is if you can explain it to a five year old, all good, then then you can explain it to anyone. Uh, yeah. And you're on the journey to solving it. And but if you uh, couldn't agree more, well, well, I obviously haven't been talking to five year olds today. I've been talking to this very senior guys uh, that I've known for a long time and just so appreciate your guys. Uh, history, experience and careers are phenomenal. And um, I love that you've you know, keep the same passion and energy from when I've met you years ago. And and that is uh, driving you uh, in what you do. So any any final thoughts? Uh, determination that's the other thing i would say is, is i'll just say is, uh, don't keep, like... you know just okay. determination and, and being able to keep on it is really important in today's world you know because there's a there's a lot of reasons that you know if you'll find a lot of people who will say no but you just got to keep doing the people who succeed just are the ones who are absolutely determined to make things happen so you know just follow your passion and, and make it happen but uh, but really appreciate okay. the uh, the opportunity to chat again andy really enjoyed it same here yeah and my last uh, parting thoughts, look, you spend entirely too much time working not to love the people that you work with, uh, to feel like you walk out of wherever you are smarter than when you got there in the morning. And, um, you know, be a student of the game, you know, read and listen and learn because the, the learning and the ideas come from anywhere. And it also mm -hmm. makes uh, working uh, a lot more fun. Yeah. Well done. Well, thank you both. This has been phenomenal. I really appreciate it. I think our listeners are going to learn a lot and uh, off to the races and uh, back to creating the future. Thanks, Andy.